Hey, we'll take that Bible and turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to finish a series that we began a number of weeks ago. We took a little hiatus over Christmas, but on the local church, the nature, the function, the purpose, and the mission of the church. Some weeks back, we looked at the reality that Christ Jesus is building his church. In Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. If you're a part of the local church, a member of the church, you are a part of a mission that cannot fail. Then we looked at the role the following week of the pastor or the elder. They are responsible and privileged to teach, train, and feed the flock of God. We looked at the following week at your role and really all of our roles as Christians. We are in Romans 12.1 that we are to lay down our lives on the altar of sacrifice. God is not asking you as a Christian to make sacrifices. He is telling you that you are to be a living, holy, embodied sacrifice so that your entire life is approached in this way. God, everything I am belongs to you. And in doing so, you are to realize that each one of you, every single one of you, if you're a Christian, has been given a unique to you spiritual gift. We talked about that already this morning, that God has designed you in such a way in the body of Christ where you have a part to play. And if you are not exercising that gift, the rest of the body suffers. And we are given these gifts for one main reason in scripture. It's Ephesians 4.12, for the building up of the body so that we might all be mature in Christ. Today, I wanna look at one last truth that is the glue for our local church. It is the defining characteristic of a Christian. You could say that this is what Jesus Christ gives the, script, gives the Christian as the garment they wear in the watching world. And that is love. Today, we are going to examine the high calling we have from God in his word to love another. And initially, I want to begin by focusing on the words of John in his first epistle, which is 1 John. And then we're going to look at chapter three chapter three, but I want to begin to summarize and set the stage for what John is talking about in first John. John has written his first epistle for one main reason. He tells us explicitly in first John chapter five, he says, whoever believes that Jesus, or I'm sorry, verse 13, these things I have written to you so that you may believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. You need to understand something about your God. God takes no delight in those who claim to know him having a lack of assurance as to whether or not they actually belong to God. First John was written so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt, you belong to God. God does not want you to live your life with a hint of uncertainty that you are truly saved. The Roman Catholic Church, I've told you before, teaches that it is a venial sin for you to have assurance of your salvation. It is called the sin of presumption for you to have a confidence in your standing before God. It couldn't be any more different than what God's delight in in his word is to you. In first Peter, it says, make your calling and election sure. You should know by the time your head hits the pillow tonight that if you were to die in your sleep, you would wake up in the presence of God. Now, I wanna get something very straight for us. What do you contribute to your salvation? What's the answer? 
nothing. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. But here's what we want to look at. Because we always need to interpret scripture with scripture, meaning that we never isolate one truth of scripture and divorce it from other parts of the scripture. You are saved by faith. You contribute nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless to thee for grace. But here's what the scripture and Jesus himself is going to say, that you need to examine your life to see whether or not you're actually in the faith. The scariest verse in the Bible, I believe, is in Matthew 7. Many, many will say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will look at them and say, I never knew you. Do you understand that every single day you rub shoulders with people in Nashville that will get to the presence of God. They'll meet him at the throne of judgment and they'll say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, I do not know you. They are people who would have professed faith in Christ, but never possessed faith in Christ. I want to tell you something about the demons. In James 2, it says that even the demons believe in what? Shudder. The demons believe every single ounce of doctrine in this book. They believe in the person of Christ. They believe in the work of Christ. They know that he died on the cross. They believe in his resurrection. They hate the fact that he's resurrected. They know that he's coming again. And do you know where the demons will spend all of eternity? What Jesus tells us in Matthew, they will spend all of eternity in the lake of fire. So then, how do we know if I have demon faith, which is an intellectual assent to the truth, an acknowledgement of the identity of Jesus Christ, but no genuine saving faith. How do I know if I truly belong to God? Well, this is the purpose of John's gospel. And he gives you two primary tests to the one who claims faith in Christ. And here's what we need to understand. These tests are not the basis of your faith. They are the evidence of saving faith. Tracking so far? This is important. Jesus says, you will know a tree by its what? Fruit. That's not some spin on scripture. That's the words of Jesus Christ. So John gives two tests. The first of which is who do you obey? Or whom do you obey? You are not saved by your obedience. You are saved by faith. But saving faith manifests itself in obedience. Don't believe me, 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and deceive ourselves. If we say we have fellowship with him, walk in this pattern of sin, we are liars. We're delusional. It says in 1 John 2, 4, the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But who is the one who calls in a salvific sense? Because there are people right here that would have called on the name of God that John just says is a liar. It's the one who what? manifest saving faith by a desire in their life to be increasingly conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Obedience here is not talking about the perfection of our lives. It's talking about the direction of our lives. Does this mean we don't stumble in sin? Absolutely not. Because it says, my little children, 1 John 2, 1, I am writing these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. He is the full satisfaction of the wrath of God. I'm writing these things to you, not so that you doubt your salvation. I'm writing these things to you so that you can know you are saved. 
And one of those first tests is, do you obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Romans 6 says, you are slaves of the one you obey. If you're a slave to lust, you cannot say at the same time you are a slave to Jesus Christ. That's just the plain reading of the Bible. That's not any theological camp. That just, that's just the plain reading of the scripture. You are slaves of the one you obey. So that first test he gives is obedience. The second test that John gives in his epistle is do you love the brethren? Do you love others? Love is elevated and exalted above everything else in terms of one relationship to God and relationship to others. It is the all-encompassing umbrella under which all of the law and the prophets rest, a love for God and a love for others. John combines these in 310, look with me. He says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. John is going to link these two twin truths over and over again. Look with me at 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Look with me at 1 John 2, 9. I just want you to get the idea that I'm not coming up with any sort of creative strategy when I'm preaching. I just want you to see it's all here. Remember, that's the goal. The goal is for you to be able to walk away and go, it's all right there. 1 John 2, 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. If you claim to love God, but do not love the others whom God has adopted into his same family, the scripture is going to say over and over again, your claim is meaningless. 1 John 4, 20. Why didn't you go in order? I, I don't know. 1 John 4, 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Here's the truth for you. We are not adding to the gospel when we take the test that God has given to us to evaluate and examine if the root of salvation has taken place in our heart by considering the inevitable fruit that God's spirit produces in our life. And one of those critical gauges of our spiritual temperature is our affection for one another. Can I ask you something as we get rolling this morning? Do you love the people that are to your right and to your left and in front of you? Do you love them? Maybe you think, ah, it's legalistic to say, um, for me to ask this question. If you're late to get in here and in a hurry to get out of here, and you don't love the people of God, it's revealing about your heart. Because when we gather in a church, we gather amongst people who are perfect in Christ, but yet possess many imperfections, maybe some annoyances, there's probably someone around you that you get irked by. But as it relates to becoming and being a Christian, one of the first rungs of the ladder is that you love them in Christ. Today, I wanna look at three things. The call to love, the quality of love, secondly, and third, the expressions of love. And we will spend the majority of our time on this third and final point. But first of which is the call to love. Look with me at 1 John three eleven, And we're gonna look at a lot of scripture today because that's what we do. First John three eleven. for this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, 
that we should love one another. He says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Okay, here's a basic principle for your life. If it's a new spin on scripture, it's probably not true. If someone says, hey, I got something that's new for you in God's word, you know what you call that? A cult. Every single new revelation spawns a new religion. That's Joseph Smith. He had new revelation from God, Mormonism. Muhammad, new revelation from God, Islam. But John is saying, hey, this is something you need to understand. I'm not coming up with fresh ideas. I am going back to what God has always revealed to us through his word. And one of the basic principles of following God and loving God is that you love one another. In Deuteronomy 6, the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the book that precedes Deuteronomy is Leviticus. And in Leviticus, we read that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is going to reiterate these two great commands in Matthew 22 and say that the law and the prophets, meaning the entirety of scripture rests on these two commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. You're to love God with gusto, with excitement, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says the law and the prophets, all of the scripture hangs underneath this all-encompassing umbrella, the 10 commandments, in regards to their relationship to one another, well, you can put it under that banner of loving one another because you're not gonna steal from someone you love. You're not gonna be envious of someone you love. You're not going to dishonor someone you love. You're not going to murder someone you love. And so Jesus says, all of the law, all of the prophets hang from these twin truths. But when John says, this is what you've heard from the beginning, he's not just referring to chronology, he's referring to priority. This is the beginning of what it means to follow God. You love one another. I fear that today so many people come to Christ and they've never heard a single thing about the commitment scripture makes that if you're a part of the family of God, you love the family. You're not a reluctant member. Some of you, even going home for the holidays, you have family that you put up with. The scripture says, no, 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 no. You love the people of God. We're not only commanded and privileged to do this. I want you to understand, you are enabled to love one another through the Holy Spirit. Margaret Clarkson says that God's commandments are his enablings. Every single thing, understand this, that God has commanded you in his word he, through the power of his Holy Spirit, enables you to obey. So if you're going, man, this person's not very lovable. Assuredly, Jesus is just talking about the people that are easy to love. No, in Matthew 5, if you've been tracking into the Bible reading plan, you would have read this on Friday. If you're a day behind, no worries. Plug back in. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, are you any better than the tax collector? They love people that love them. The mark of the Christian is you love people who persecute you. You love people that annoy you. You love people with no qualifiers, no footnotes attached. We are not saved by love. We are saved by faith. But where there is genuine faith, there will always be genuine love. It was J.C. Ryle who says, sun and light, fire and heat, ice and cold, they are not more intimately united than faith and love. 
you cannot have a higher view of faith than does the apostle Paul. He writes his magnum opus in the book of Romans. He says that we are justified by what? Faith. Amen? Amen. But look with me, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13 to a familiar passage. Because Paul is going to say that if you claim faith yet don't possess love, your claim to faith is worthless. 13, 1, 1 Corinthians. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Here's what Paul is saying. If you're a preacher and you fill stadiums, if you're a wealthy man and you give it all away, if you serve your guts out, but without this element of genuine love, it means nothing. Turn with me to Colossians chapter three. I want you to see this. Colossians chapter three. Paul, in the preceding verses, has been talking about the expressions of love and We'll do that in a moment, but I want to look with you at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, So then, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Listen to what John says in 1 John. He says, beloved, let us love one another, 1 John 4, 7, because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is the calling of every single believer. And John says, this is nothing new, but I want you to see what Jesus says in John's gospel because not only there is, is there the call to love, but there's going to be now, I want to consider the quality of love. Turn with me to John chapter 13. We're going to get to John chapter 13 sometime, I think, next year. But let me set the stage for you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels because they provide a comprehensive framework for Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew and Luke start with the baby in the manger. Jesus and John just shows up on the scene. He is the word who became flesh. And we'll begin to look at this in two weeks. One of the things you need to understand about the gospel of John is that 50% of John's gospel focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. So even in John 13, even though you're only halfway through the gospel, There they are, the final dinner before Jesus is going to be crucified. And he's there sitting with his disciples and they're having a discussion. The disciples are actually having a disagreement. Do you know what they're arguing about? Who amongst them is the greatest? But here is the picture of God who took on flesh in John 13, one. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to 
the max, telos in Greek. There was no more love with which God could have loved his own in Christ. He loved them with a degree of divine perfection. He loved them to the max. You and I sometimes are hesitant. We have reservations about pouring out our heart to people and showing them the fullness of the love we can offer. Jesus, knowing he was going to be slaughtered by the people he came to save, knowing he would be, be betrayed by Judas, Judas heard every single sermon. And knowing he would be betrayed by Judas, he loved him to the max. It's amazing. And in his final hours, Jesus is going to give them what he calls a new commandment. John 13, 34. And I'm just going to read the first part. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Pause there for a moment. Why does Jesus call this a new commandment if it's the commandment that we've received from the beginning? Well, it's new in the sense of scope, magnitude, and degree. It's new in the sense of quality. Look back with me, because Jesus is not just telling you to love one another. He's telling you something else. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, comma, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another, Look with me at John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 17 of chapter 15, this is my commandment to you, that you love one another. Sometimes the preacher just needs to pause more and let the spirit of God wield the sword of scripture. Here's the words of Jesus Christ. This is my command, that you love one another just in the same quality and essence as I have loved you. Ephesians 5 verse one says, be imitators of Christ. And then what's the natural demonstration of that? Verse two, walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Have you ever loved someone like Christ loves you? Well, of course not. But this isn't just hyperbole. It's something that God's spirit enables us to do. So if we are to love one another as Christ loved, we must ask the question, how does he love? How does he love? Which brings us to our third point, the expression of love. Turn back with me to 1 John chapter 3 for a moment. And we're going to look at a lot of scriptures right now, and you can be ready to flip those pages. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Love is more than a feeling. It's not just a feeling, it's a verb. In 1 John 3, 18, it's gonna say, hey, if you love the people of God, you're going to love them in deed and in action. And I wanna just take you through a brief list of 
the ways that Christ loves us. If we are to love one another as Christ loved us, we are to ask that question. Well, how has Jesus in his word revealed his love to you and I? Well, first, if you're taking notes, subpoints of this third point, true love is humble service. True love is humble service. Look over to Philippians chapter two. If you're new to the Bible and you're unfamiliar with where we're turning, there's no worries there. You have a life le- left to learn. But I want you to place your own eyes on your own Bibles. Philippians 2, and you know this passage potentially. But I want to show you the mind-boggling, pride-smashing, love-cultivating humility of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, 5, it says... Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This humility is not just kind of an, an internal Attitude, it's both an outward expression that Jesus makes. If we were to go back to John 13, I would say, hey, in that conversation that the disciples were having about who amongst them was the greatest, and in Matthew's account right before that conversation, the mother of James and John comes up to Jesus and says, please let one of my sons, the sons of thunder, would you allow for one of them to sit at your right and the other on your left? And here's Jesus knowing he's going to be slaughtered in a matter of hours and he watches them bicker. No, I'm better than you. I'm more gifted than you. Actually, did you see the way they responded to my teaching? Uh, You couldn't cast out that one demon. I did. And here's Jesus in John 13. He takes off his outer robe and he begins to what? Wash their feet. And it's in the thick of arrogance that he becomes a humble servant. You cannot get lower than this. He washes the dirty feet of the disciples. True greatness in the kingdom of God consists in humble service. Jesus says in Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Maybe you're wondering even in recent weeks, as I talk about spiritual gifting, you're unsure, what's my spiritual gift? Let me just encourage you. Washing feet requires no spiritual gifting. Just a heart of humility. And Jesus demonstrates his love by his humble servant-hearted attitude. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I could spend many weeks on just this one idea, but I wanna frame your thinking. Love is a verb. It's not just a feeling, it is an action. What's the predominant expression of love? It's humble service. But secondly, not only is it humble service, true love is kind. Turn with me for a few moments to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, true love is kind. In Ephesians four, Paul tells them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called. Then he tells them to walk in love. Well, how do they walk in love? Verse 32, they are to be kind to one another. True love, it sounds so simple, 
is kind. Why should the believer be kind? Well, because in 1 Peter 2, it says that if you're a believer, you have tasted the kindness of God. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is patient. Love is what? Kind. And then it provides a qualifier for what kindness is. It says love is patient. Love is kind. It is not, anybody know? Jealous. And in 1 John 3, he says that you should love the brethren. And then he says, not as, there's only one name in 1 John, and it's the name Cain. It says, not as Cain who killed his brother. Why did he kill Abel? My grandpa always used to say, Cain killed Abel with the leg of a table. Why did he do that? Because he was jealous that the Lord had looked upon Abel with favor. And it says killed in Genesis 4, but that's not the word used in Hebrew. The word used in Hebrew to describe the slaughtering of Abel by Cain is the same word used to slit the throat of a sacrifice. And there is Cain going to God. Oh, you want to sacrifice God? Here's my brother. And why was he so filled with hatred? He was jealous of him. He could not handle that God had blessed Abel. And true love here is kind. It's not jealous. It celebrates when other people succeed. Do you know what is interesting to me about the story with Cain and Abel? Cain was moments before at a worship service. He was offering a sacrifice to God and his anger soared, his countenance fell. He was filled with jealousy and he killed his brother. So 1 John 3 and 1 Corinthians 13 are tying this thread together. The antonym of kindness is often jealousy. How does kindness reveal itself? Well, third here in Ephesians 4, love is humble, love is kind. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Third here, love is tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Remember that I said love is not just a feeling, that it's an action. But here's where we could get wrong in scripture because remember, we always need to interpret scripture with scripture. Love is not just a feeling, but you need to understand in the Bible that love includes not only the outward expressions of love so that you're gritting and grinding your way to display love towards one another. It is actually a demeanor and posture of your heart where the Holy Spirit of God produces a tender-hearted compassion for even the people you find difficult, for even the people that have offended you and grieved you. Our love for one another is not that we put up with them and we suck it up and serve them. It is a miracle of God that God does in our hearts. 1 Peter 1.22, it says, since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere, sincere is a key word here. It means authentic, genuine, true love for the brethren. It says, fervently love one another from the heart. In Romans 12, it says, let love be without hypocrisy. I mean, and I'm not saying, yeah, I love them. And then I walk away and I despise them. It's amazing how much we dismiss the necessity of actually having a genuine affection for people in our hearts. There are Christians who spend their entire life thinking that they can maintain this paradox of I'm going to love them with my actions and in my heart, I'm going to resent them. And the Bible says that is wildly incongruous. It's actually hypocritical. And that's why Romans 12 says, let love be without hypocrisy. 
If your outward actions do not match your internal attitude towards an individual, you need to beg God to put a miracle in your heart so that you feel tenderhearted towards them as Christ has felt tenderhearted towards you. Paul compounds on this reality that it's not just outward expressions, but internal attitudes. In Philippians 2, we just read it when he says, have this mind amongst yourself of humility. He's not saying act humble. He's saying be humble in your heart. One pastor says, it is possible, frighteningly possible, to externally obey the one another's with a mind utterly at odds with Christ. It's possible to greet one another with a smile that hides bitterness and encourage one another with grasping, flattering heart. It's also quite possible to bear one another's burdens with a Messiah complex. True Christian love is tender-hearted. It is a real love from the heart. Fourth, and we just continue in our flow of Ephesians 4 for a moment, true love that is tender-hearted is forgiving. Is there anyone in this room that you are bitter towards? 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love keeps no record of wrong. I remember one of the moments in my life where I think God just used his word to change me. I was reading the Bible during the off season at Hume Lake and it was the first time in my life I realized that God's love is not manipulative. It's sincere and that when he forgives, he doesn't keep a record of wrong. He's taken my sin and removed it as far as the east is from the west. He's plunged it into the sea. And so often we say we forgive each other, I forgive you, and then we cling to bitterness. Potentially, out of all the things that destroy a church, you would have to put at the top of the list bitterness. It not only destroys churches, it destroys individuals. Hebrews 2.15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, watch this, many be defiled. When you're bitter against someone else, it's not just affecting you. It's affecting everyone around you. Some of us have detailed accounts of every sin ever committed against us. I forgive them. I just don't want to interact with them ever again. But what's the extent and quality of the forgiveness that we are to offer to one another? Ephesians 4.32b. Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. God does not spring clean our dirty hearts. He makes them white as snow. And this is convicting for me. Number five, true love encourages and builds. Look back with me to Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it may give grace to those who hear. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are also doing. I find that like amazing. I have never noticed in this before that Paul encourages the Thessalonian church to encourage one another and then encourage them, encourages them to continue to encourage them 
by reminding them of how good they are at encouraging others. He says, you're already doing this. Continue to build one another up. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such words that are good for edification. What's edification? Well, it's edifice. It, it means to build and to construct only such words that are good for edification, that it may give grace to those who hear. Can I answer your, or ask you a question? How many words is the Christian allowed to say that tear down? Zero. Sadly, in a church, most of the gossip and the slander is disguised as prayer requests. Pray for Stephanie. What a mess. Oh, they're struggling right now. <laughs> yeah. I just thought I should let you know. Listen, there is probably nothing more subtle that destroys churches than gossip and slander. And the Christian makes a commitment between them and God and them and each other. I will only use words that make souls stronger. I'm only going to build up even my correction that I offer to a brother or to a sister is rooted not on a quest to vanquish a theological foe or to bat them upside the head. It's rooted in a love and care for their soul. And that's going to manifest itself in the way that you approach them. There is a place for correction and for rebuke, but the wounds of a friend are faithful. And the, the scripture says that we are to speak words that encourage and edify. Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another. How often? Every day, it says. True love, sixth, is patient. 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love is patient. Love is kind. One of the fruits of God's Holy Spirit in Galatians 5 is what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience kindness. It says in Colossians 3, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why should we be patient? Because God has been patient with you. Amen. Romans 2, do you think lightly of God's patience, it says. God has, in the Greek, Macrothumia. I remember my dad explaining this to me. And I remember I used to go with him to different camps and he used to get this long rope out and there would be like fake TNT and bombs and dynamite at the other end. And kind of like when you light a fuse, he would say that the idea of being patient in the scripture is that God has a long fuse. Some of you are quick to react, quick to temper, quick to speak, but God is patient because true love manifests itself in endurance relationally. That's what humility is. It's slow to speak, quick to listen. God has a long fuse. And some of us have short ones and we need to ask God for help. Seventh here, true love bears burdens. Galatians 6, 2 says, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4 says, bear with one another in love. Some of you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. She dove off of the dock when she was a teenager and she became paralyzed for life. She's a quadriplegic. And she wrote this article I was reading this week and it's entitled, How Quadriplegia 
prepared me to carry others. Johnny Erickson Tata cannot carry anything. But because she has endured great suffering, she says that through my suffering, God has prepared me to bear other people's burdens. Are you going through something? Are you in the midst of a fiery trial? Are you facing affliction? The people of God are here to help you carry the load. To say, let me carry you as you carry this trial. I love you. I don't want you to walk through this alone. Part of being a burden bearer is learning how to comfort others. Michelle, can we put that verse up? I want to read this for you in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You can go next. It says, Who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you know one of your chief functions as a believer? so that when you're in great trial, when you're in the valley of the shadow of death and you receive the comfort from God that comes uniquely to people that are in distress, you then become an instrument and an agent by which you extend the comfort of God and you are an instrument of his comfort to those who are in any affliction. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another. Number eight, true love speaks the truth. We read it already, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. There is in every healthy church dozens of teachers. Every teacher, everybody's a teacher. I'm not the only teacher here. I'm just the one that's on stage right now. Every single one of you has a commitment before God to teach and equip and admonish with the word of God. Finally, I just want to look at this back in 1 John. We already read it. 1 John 3, 16, true love sacrifices. 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It says we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Can I draw your attention to a distinction that I think is obvious in scripture? Service to one another has limitations. There are parameters to service. I will serve you if it fits X, Y, and G. Z, criteria. I was just making sure you're paying attention. <laughs> X, Y, and G, criteria. Service has boundaries. But do you know what has no boundaries? Sacrifice. We're not called to serve one another here. Jesus Christ is saying to you through his living word, you are to lay down your life for the people of God, because Jesus Christ has laid down his life for you. So then when it comes to someone in need, I don't want to bother you. You want to bother me? What are you talking about? This is why Jesus Christ has saved me. He laid down his life for me so that I can lay down my life on the altar for you. I don't want to be a burden. Be a burden. That's why God saved me. 
He saved me so that I might bear your burdens because he has once and for all forgiven the burden of my sin. This is a lot to ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness, I wanna forgive you as Christ has forgiven me. All because I've tasted and experienced his love. He's removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. Don't even mention it. I forgive you. It's forgotten. Give me a hug. Because your life, if you're a Christian, is not just for you and God. It's for, look around. I mean, do it literally. I'm not just saying that. Look around. Your life belongs to them. It belongs to them. How important is this? Getting real pumped up, John. How important is this? Well, can I just tell you? Very, very important. Why? John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The way you interact with each other, there might be a visitor in here that's never been to church. Raise your hand. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> they come in here, and the billboard to the watching world is wow. There is a real affection. There's some old people, there's some young people, there's some people from the West Coast. God bless them. There's some people from the East Coast, but they love each other. And that's how I know there's something supernatural happening in this industrial center. You know, even lately, I've been a little convicted. I, you know, sometimes if you're a dude, you, you get off the phone and you say, man, I love you, bro. That's acceptable, right? But if you were to say, I love you by their first name, you've crossed a threshold. <laughs> it's getting a little weird, right? You're like, hey, I don't know. If you were to go, also, you have to take out the I. If you say, love you, bro, that's good. If you say, I love you, bro, that's a different ball game. And if you say, I love you, Bob, that's like, bro, I'm alive. I'm still here. This isn't a eulogy. But listen, if you're a Christian, you need to make very normal. I love you. I love you. I love you. When you greet one another, it's not just, hey, what's up, bro? It's, I love you. And God has, through his Holy Spirit, wrought about a sincere affection for you. You matter to me. I'm praying for you because your burdens are my burdens. That'll change everything about our church. It'll change everything about your life. What's the result of love? Well, we already saw it's assurance. First John 5, 1, whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Secondly, it brings about harmony. Love is the f really the fount of harmony in our church. And in first John, he says, these things I write to you so that you may have fullness of anybody know? Joy. John says at the beginning of the epistle, these things I write to you so that you may have joy. And at the end of the epistle, he says, these things I write to you so that you may have assurance. So which one is it? Well, it's both, right? Because you cannot possibly possess the joy that comes from Christ if you doubt, first of all, where you're going. And if you do not live in the loving community that God has saved you to be a part of. 
I love you guys. And uh, as a church, what a joy to get to love one another. You've always hear me harping on the Bible studies community groups that's coming on the 28th. Part of the reason that's so important to us is because love is a verb. And that is to be tangibly expressed as you live life with one another. Can we ask God for his help in this regard? Let's pray. And the band will come up for one final song. God, we love you. And we're so thankful that you love us, Lord. There are people in here that may be difficult for us to love. What an opportunity for us to be dependent upon your spirit and to love them like you love them as your image bears. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here with a root of bitterness, that you would help them to run to Christ and that they would, through your spirit, forgive other people that have offended and grieved them. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would make us a church marked by love. We pray this in your holy name. And all God's people said,